When I started Psychology on the Cross a few years back, I had reached the end of the road. Starting a podcast was an attempt to break the isolation I was in. It was an attempt to open a window to my own study and start talking to analysts and scholars who had spent much longer time than myself with these questions. To open up a dialogue, to feel less alone. And it worked. A lot of the joy involved in putting together these episodes is the rich feedback and thoughtful commentary I received per email from some of you listening. About a year and a half ago, it started to become clear to me that some of these conversations offers such valuable insights into the relationship between Jungian psychology and Christianity that the podcast medium can't fully harness. Some of the insights shared by my guests deserves not only to be listened to more than once, but also to be put in print, read slowly and further pondered on. In the last year I have been finalizing the manuscript for the book Sigi Jung, Face to Face with Christianity, Conversations on Dreaming the Myth Onward. It will be released by Caron Publications in 2024. It will contain material from some of the conversations I had throughout the years, plus a thorough introduction to Jungian Christianity, as well as an epilogue written by myself. Now, let's turn to this episode on Rudolf Steiner and C.G. Jung. This is an episode that has been long in the making. I have long been fascinated by the work of anthroposophist Rudolf Steiner and also interested to understand the parallels between his spiritual science and worldview and Jung's ideas. Although their lives overlap, Steiner was born in 1861 and died in 1925, to my knowledge they never met in person. Jung says he read a few of Steiner's books but he did not seem impressed. Last year in spring I did a lecture at the ISAP Institute in Zurich, when after the lecture Graham, an interesting and friendly man who had been following the podcast, asked if I should not make an episode on Steiner. Well, I said the same thing to him, that I had been wanting to do that, but I don't know who to talk to. Some time ago now, Graham got in touch with me and put me in contact with Jonah C. Evans. Jonah is a priest and director of the seminary at the Christian Community in North America, based in Toronto. The Christian community is an international Christian movement inspired by Rudolf Steiner, still very active today. It has a unique blend of Christianity, emphasizing the human freedom, the personal experience of the divine, and the sacraments. Jonah is also well read on Jung. Actually, he wanted first to become a Jungian analyst, and he showed to be the perfect conversation partner to better understand Steiner's thinking on Christianity and how it overlaps with and connects with Jung. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to Jonah about Steiner and you, and I hope that you will also find it stimulating. Well, I am really happy that we get this chance to speak, Jonah, because the last years, I would say, I've been in my own little world thinking a lot about Rudolf Steiner and, and Sigi Jung, and I've been long, longing for meeting a person that I could have a conversation with about Steiner. But before we dig into Steiner and Jung and, and correlations. I'd like to ask you a little bit about yourself and if you could share a bit about your background that led you to become today a, a priest in the, in the Christian community. Yeah, okay. Well, it's it's wonderful also just to be invited, Jakob, and I'm very grateful to have this conversation because in my world too, it's very rare to find someone who's both interested in Jung 
and Steiner. But as far as my story goes, I grew up in California, in Sacramento, and I attended the Steiner School, the Waldorf School there for my whole childhood. And like most kids, when I graduated high school, I didn't want to have anything to do with Steiner or anthroposophy or anything, Christianity for that matter, and pushed it all away. And I was, I, I then went to university in California and received a degree in psychology. And that's where my my love for Jung actually started to grow. And I studied at that point some Jung or was inspired by him. Of course, studying his complete works is very challenging, but I wanted to go and do further education and actually become a Jungian analyst. But my destiny would have it otherwise. <laughs> As I was getting married, and in the marriage process, the priest said to me, Jonah, why don't you why don't you go look at the seminary? And it was the seminary of the Christian community, or in German, the Christian Gemeinschaft in Chicago at that time. And when I walked in, my wife and I at that point, we were married, walked in, and I just knew. I walked in the room. I had this, in a way, kind of spiritual experience where I saw my whole life as a kind of tableau preparing me for this moment. And I just had this deep feeling this was my task. And I never looked back, really, <laughs> after that. But if I can say one more thing, in just in regards to my story, that I think is relevant, that had to be prepared, of course, a bit. Because after I graduated high school, I was not interested in Christianity at all. What I gravitated toward was... Definitely depth psychology, but also Buddhism and Zen in particular. I was very much drawn to the Eastern path. And as I, as I really started to practice that and get into the, the real meditative practice and experiences that I was led to in Buddhism, that's where... I had a kind of deep question that awoke in me. And as I was experiencing what Buddhism was leading to me, leading me to, which was this kind of empty consciousness, this kind of oneness consciousness, where you're just attentive to what is and you're allowing everything to rise and fall in your own mind. I had the question, is this all there is? Is it just my consciousness? Awake and blissful, yes, but is that all there is? And I, I think that that question really led me, and I can describe that more if you want, but it really led me to a Christ experience that was then the foundation of why I could even go and look into the priesthood and, and the seminary. I was thinking for, for the listeners who, I mean, most of the listeners to the podcast have a pretty good idea about you and maybe the psychology, but we're going to go into Steiner. But first of all, the Christian Gemeinde or the Christian community, could, could you say something about that, where you are active and where you work as a priest? 
and how that relates to, to Steiner. Yeah, well, in, in 1922, a group of theologians, young people, university students, and a couple of seasoned pastors went to Rudolf Steiner and asked him if he could help them to re-enliven Christianity. And Rudolf Steiner, as he did in many things, he, he helped a lot of different branches of culture and professionalism to find a new way of looking at their work. He said, of course, I'll help you. I'm glad you asked. And so that then what ensued was basically five different courses of lectures and study and conversation with this body of humans that wanted to do this work, this priest, new priesthood. And over the course of a couple of years, he really, you could say, helped to bring down from the spiritual world, helped to form and shape a new way, a new sacramental path, seven sacraments, a new gesture in the, in the practice of sacramental Christianity. And in a way, if I were to encapsulate it, the Christian community, it, it's, it's probably best characterized as very based on ritual, on, on the sacrament, on the mass. Communion is practiced at every service where you take in the bread and the wine or the body and the blood and receive the peace of Christ. But at the same time, there's no classical forms of dogma. So there's not a whole doctrine like in the Catholic Church that has to be abided by, followed kind of absolutely. Instead, it has the sacraments which show concrete pictures of the reality of Christ, but it encourages working with those to come to know them yourself, really encourages a kind of free thinking that is grappling with the truths that are revealed in the gospel and in the sacraments. So that's maybe a good way to characterize the Christian community. It's, it's relatively new. It's focused on experiencing the realities of Christ. It works with the sacrament as a portal, as a window to experience, as opposed to just something you have to do to go to heaven. And it really encourages you actively thinking and coming to know these things, as opposed to just believing what the priest would say. And, and when this happened back then in the 1920s, these priests, theologians, students getting in touch with Steiner, having discussions, what do we know more about that? How did that look? Basically, the group of people that were interested started small and grew a bit more, but then also shrunk again when it came time to actually fulfilling the task of being a priest. So in the end, it was about 45 to 50 people, humans, including women, which was pretty radical at that time, that were ordained as priests. 
And the way it worked was, yeah, they basically gathered mostly in Dornach, where this so-called Gertianum is in Switzerland. And they, yeah, Steiner held lectures. He also worked with discussion groups, conversation groups, question and answer groups. And he would then also help help with his own kind of spiritual perception and insight to shape what are now our sacraments that are practiced. And he used very much the existing sacraments in the Catholic Church as a kind of base, but he also tried to perceive what is necessary now for the human being and how is Christ now revealing himself as opposed to when the Catholic or Orthodox sacraments were founded. Mm. And you told me in our conversation some weeks back that Steiner, he lived between the Catholic Church and the Lutheran or the Protestant or the Reformed. Yeah. And he was working with, with two, two extremes yeah, to find this uh, new way, this renewal. Uh, could you say something short about this? Yeah, yeah. In a way, I mean, that's that's very much what the German culture was also working with, right? There's just two churches. I think even today, there's just yeah. two churches, the Lutherans and the Catholics. And where you could say the Lutherans are more focused on thinking clearly about their own relationship with the gospel. And the Catholics are more focused on working with the ritual and the sacrament as a window to God. Mm -hmm. He was very much trying to marry those two things, find the, the healthy balance. But at the same time, he wasn't using those two things. And he was really trying to perceive out of his own perception, what does the human being need now as a religious Christian? And what is Christ doing now in relationship to the human being? So that, that third part is pretty radical. But in a way, not. You could say Rudolf Steiner was kind of like a a Benedictus or a Saint Francis in a way in that they or or Ignatius Leola who who kind of founded their own orders with their own emphases on it who were special people who were who were saints so in a way i think it's helpful to think of Rudolf Steiner kind of like that that he was a kind of like a saint who who founded his own order, if you will, even though, of course, the Catholic Church <laughs> would probably not uh, want to be associated with. <laughs> yeah, with I, 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 and, did, and did Steiner wants to be and stay, and did he stay associated with his uh, creation? It sounds like he almost came in as a consultant. But, but I was wondering, did he then practice with them? Or did he say, here's the stuff, guys, and go with this? Well, see, that that's that's the, the very interesting question. He did both, in a way. He both gave it away and did his own thing. Because anthroposophy, or spiritual science, is not classically a religion. It's, a, it's more of a thinking path. Hmm. But at the same time... He was devoted to the Christian community after its inception and would always 
if there was ever a funeral to do, he would always ask a priest to come. He was devoted to helping it. He even wanted it when he, he himself died. But we have to remember the Christian community only really took off probably in 1923, and Rudolf Steiner died in 25. So there was only a very short time, but while he was alive and after its inception, he not only worked with it himself, but also continued to give support and actually part of the sacraments still unfolded all the way up until his death. Um, and he would say, but my task is anthroposophy and I'm going to focus on that. Mm. So it's an interesting relationship mm. that he has. Not He's not really the founder of the Christian community, but he's the inspirer of the Christian yeah. community. Mm. And staying a little bit longer with the foundations, Steiner's own Christianity and his relationship to Christianity. Uh, this podcast is a lot about Jung's relationship to Christianity, and we know that it was a very ambivalent one. He appreciated it. He worked with it. He struggled with it. But uh, people would argue if he actually was a Christian or not. How was it with, with, with Steiner? Well, that's a very interesting question. I think one thing that stands out to me in connection and how, how Rudolf Steiner and Carl Jung could be connected in that way is that they were both really interested, not just in believing something blindly, but really coming to know something through your own experience. And I think you even told me, Carl Jung said one time, I don't, in an interview, I know that God exists. So in a way, Carl Jung was working to, to discover through his own experience and knowledge, God. And Steiner very much was the same. His, his anthroposophy, his spiritual science, really is a path to come to experience and know for yourself God and and his angels, and mm -hmm. his demons. <laughs> um, and so in a way, that's I think that is probably one of the pr most profound connections between the two. But Steiner's path, he grew up Catholic, and then he kind of ren renounced it all, as one does, and really took up the academic life. But the whole time was kind of secretly carrying these capacities of what one would call clairvoyance or the ability to see spiritual beings. But he never really told anyone about that. And it kind of went through phases in his own being as well. Academically, as he, as he studied philosophy and the sciences and eventually doing a PhD in philosophy and writing one of his more famous books, The Philosophy of Freedom. You can see if you're, if you're very observant about his early documents, you can see that he's in a way almost antagonistic to doctrinal or religious Christianity. 
because he was also inspired by Nietzsche and wanted to know things for himself. He didn't want to just believe because some authority says it. So you'll even find like, for example, Rudolf Steiner went to a, a party once and he, he filled out a, a party questionnaire just for fun. It was kind of, I guess that's what you did back back at that time in, in Germany. Um, but you were, you were meant to at the top, put your motto for life, your motto for life. And Rudolf Steiner wrote, in place of God, the free human being. In mm -hmm. place of God, the free human being. So in a way, you could, you could describe Rudolf Steiner's early work as deeply humanistic, where he saw he wanted to lift the human being up and give it as much dignity and honor as possible, kind of battling against this picture of the human being as a worm worth nothing that had to obey an almighty divine being. And so, and yet, as he, as he grappled and struggled to, you could say, realize this true human being <laughs> that he also wanted to become, he went through a kind of crisis, initiation crisis in his mid-30s, which many of us go through. <laughs> But his was unique in that he struggled, he describes it as a kind of dark night of the soul. And at the end, he had this experience where he describes that in his auto autobiography, where he, it's a, it's a Christ experience, really, where he describes he stands before the mystery of Golgotha in a festival of knowledge, he says. Stand, I, I struggled through and was lifted up into an, a, an experience of really of the risen Christ as he images himself in the mystery of Golgotha, the crucifixion and the resurrection. And he stood before that as a a real experiential reality, he says. And in that experience, he realized, and this is kind of like Paul. In a way, Rudolf Steiner is kind of like a new Paul, the apostle, where he realized in this experience that trying to make the self, the human self, it's best on my own is actually not the thing. He found that in this experience of Christ, that his real self was actually given to him, bestowed upon him. And, and his real self wasn't in him, but exists in a kind of I-thou experience. And so for him, that was a real turning point. That was the turning point, in a way, of his life. Where he not only found 
through his own experience that Christ Jesus was real in his resurrected form, but that my truest humanity is in relationship with this being. And then after that experience, he then went on to just an outpouring over 6,000 lectures and over 40 books, all basically kind of shards of this, of the light of this experience. You could describe all of anthroposophy as kind of trying to describe this living experience of, of Christ Jesus that Rudolf Steiner had. So then he was very much not necessarily devoted to the institution of the church, but the Christ being, and later in 1922, founded, helped to found a new church in relationship with his new findings of Christ. I did read uh, Steiner's biography some years back, and I, I was taken by this account. Jung also had his experiences of Christ. There was one vision in, in the night where he sees Christ uh, on a cross, which is a greenish cross, but his interpretation becomes uh, more connected to alchemy because that was what Jung was very steeped in at, at the time. And also in his uh, Red Book experience or in his Black Books, he's also sharing this encounter where he is identifying what he is or he feels to be Christ on the cross. So there's this question of identification and separation that I think he was struggling with a lot, this eye-thou relationship to, this, to these experiences. But, but thinking about Jung and Steiner putting them next to each other, we know that they, yeah, they, they, they did live at around the same time, although Steiner died much earlier than Jung, and they did, were not so far away from each other, but they were involved in that same culture. And, and I'm, I'm wondering, when you look at Jung and, and put him next to Steiner, what, what, what are the main parallels and, and also differences we can go into nature that you see? Because you already said, you know, there is a parallel in how they emphasize the individual's experience of Christ, the knowledge, the experience, yeah, the gnosis maybe. But, but if we, yeah, let's continue to explore this, because from what I know, they did never have contact. Maybe exploring this uh, relationship that did not happen. Yeah, I mean, I find it fascinating, too. I know Rudolf Steiner wrote a, a bit about Jung, but it was more, in a way, I, I want to say it was a bit, it's a bit superficial what Rudolf Steiner said about Jung in the sense of just saying that psychoanalysis only goes so far as psychological forces mm. and doesn't actually start to enter into the spiritual world that is made up of spiritual beings, so to speak. And, and yet, and that's, that, that's what you'll generally hear from anthroposophists too, who are kind of skeptical of union psychoanalysis. But I think it's a, a bit oftentimes misguided because I think Jung was also discovering in his work with the archetypes and in his experiences, even though he wrestled with them, I think he's discovering actual beings. Um, and, and there's, I think, a lot, especially in, well, in his experience of Christ, 
that is a definite connection with Rudolf Steiner. They both, in a way, and struggled with in a way, and worked with all their lives after they had it, these, these Christ experiences. And Carl Jung and Steiner would put Christ at the center of the kind of archetypal self. Even though they worked with and struggled in a different way, I would say. Another, another real connection between the two is their shadow work, if you will. Jung, Jung called it more the shadow. Rudolf Steiner gives the same archetype, the same dynamic, a different name. He calls it the double or the doppelganger. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but it's the same dynamic. It's something that the shadow is parts of your personality, parts of your being that are undigested, unintegrated hmm. into your psyche. And they can be met and encountered and worked with almost like a friend. That's how Rudolf Steiner would describe it. He gives it the name, various names, but like the lower guardian of the threshold. And this is your shadow being that Jung also describes that is not there just to punish you or be a pain in your behind, <laughs> but to teach you and help you grow and mature as you integrate your shadow being into your psyche. That's an incredible actual connection between the two, but it's just described and worked with differently. Hmm. But it's key to Rudolf Steiner's path, as well as his teachings, as well as actually the Christian community. <laughs> this form of Christianity is also unique in that it really, in its sacramental expressions, works with the integration of sin or shadow or the double into a healthy psyche to make to to gradually bring it into more and more of a, of an image and likeness of Christ Jesus the archetypal human and in, in Steiner's work or process how how would you work on integrating the shadow is the you know something he wrote on yeah so that that would be for example in outline of esoteric science or how to know higher worlds these books where he describes the lower guardian of the threshold. That's the name that he gives the shadow being. And this, this lower guardian of the threshold brings us, helps us to become aware of our weaknesses, our flaws, um, our mistakes, our sin, basically, and helps helps us become aware of it as we grow in strength to witness our own being, of course. And then we're meant to become in a relationship with it, often with the help of a priest or with a, a helping guide, but not necessarily because it is, it is itself trying to teach us as our own self in shadow form. 
So Rudolf Steiner really works with it as a spiritual experience that you can come to and start to know and be taught by and integrate in, in that way. What's integrated is you become aware of your weaknesses and then you start to work on them, become aware of them, transform yourself in and through them. Hmm. And did you say that you're, you're working that with a priest or with some guide from the Christian community or was it more like emphasizing that you should do your self-reflection in any way you'd like? Because in the Jungian analysis, you have your analyst or you do your dream work. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, it's a perfect question. So in the Christian community, the priest would help you with your shadow being. But it would be more in a religious way. And we would utilize prayer as a tool to help start to integrate and become aware of my weaknesses and my strengths and my my fallen self. We'd use different language. But the principle would be the same. So yes, the priest would help, but it, the, the tool would really more be prayer. And in the anthroposophical path, classically, it's possible to become aware of this being on your own and it as a kind of friend. <laughs> it, your shadow being, that's maybe unique in the in the Steiner path, that the shadow being actually becomes relatable in a relationship and can, if you're clean enough, start to teach you. But mostly there's a teacher often that will help you. It's, it's just found by destiny, someone who's more advanced on the anthroposophical path who will help you get your bearings in relationship to your shadow being. So most of us have helpers that are actually personalities incarnated. But as Rudolf Steiner describes it in his books, this is a being that I actually encounter that is a spiritual being, that is me, that is showing me my weaknesses. Going back a little bit to what you said before you spoke of the shadow, which is very, yeah, really interesting. There's many parallels. There's also, as you say, some differences. And I mean, both of them read Nietzsche as well. And Nietzsche was actually coining the term shadow. He used to, he used that language and then you fleshed it out as many things he has. He was a genius, but he was also inspired by what he read and who he was in contact with. But I was thinking around this question of, you said before, like that maybe there are similarities between Jung and Steiner around putting Christ as the sort of central archetype. So I was curious to, to get to understand better Steiner's view on the self and how, how Christ relates to the self, because this is also something that I've been exploring with guests in this podcast, and Jung wrote a lot around the Tattoo Christi and what that, what that possibly means in today's world or in his time. So I'm very, I would be interested to hear a little bit about Steiner on this central topic. Yeah, absolutely. This is one of the most important questions, I think. And I, I would say, I think Steiner's whole work, his whole destiny was really devoted to discovering the true self, if I could say it like that. He, he 
in his early years, he wanted to find the, the highest expression of the human self. And then he discovered through this experience that I talked about that myself wasn't something that I have, but that I am called to be in relationship with and that actually my true self is given to me in a kind of grace experience but i have to freely say yes to it <laughs> so so the self in a way has three parts there's the lower self which is our everyday consciousness myself jonah that can be yeah I'm awake to the fact that I'm a person and I need things and I can be selfish and I can be charming, all of that. And then there's something that he calls the higher self. And there's different words, different terms that he uses. He's not always stuck on one thing, but in general, the higher self is this part of ourself that's also known in, in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis part of ourself that can, you could say, step out of ourselves and look at my feelings and not react to them. Behold my thoughts and not be attached to them and have to defend them. Or not even though I may feel hungry or I may feel scared, not necessarily have to be moved by those will impulses. So it's the part of ourselves that also I described in the very beginning that can be awakened through Zen meditation, for example, to just become a witness of what lives in my being and what lives in consciousness, the pictures that are arising and falling. This higher self is actually your consciousness that was entangled with your thoughts, feelings, and will impulses, over-identified with your thoughts, feelings, and will impulses, and can, you could say, disentangle, awaken, rise above, and simply witness what's happening. Hmm. And there's a kind of peace, a kind of freedom, a kind of, even you could say, a, even a kind of bliss that one can experience in those states, in the witness, a higher self state of consciousness. But even though in our time, and you know this, Jakob, in our time with the emphasis on mindfulness meditation and teachers like Eckhart Tolle and all kinds of things, even though in our time that witness self is kind of deified, it's almost it's considered God in us that our our kind of witness consciousness is is God in us. Rudolf Steiner doesn't stop there, and and I don't believe Jung stopped there either. But Rudolf Steiner certainly doesn't stop there in the sense that he then describes a true self. So there's the lower self, the higher self and the true self. And the true self is actually not in us per se. It rays into us, but it's deeply unconscious. 
And this true self is actually contained in this being called Christ Jesus. <laughs> Just as Paul, sa Paul says in Colossians 3, for example, you have died. And your true being is in Christ. And when he appears, your true self, your true being is appearing with him and is given to you. So it's the true self is a kind of lemniscate, I, thou relationship with this archetypal human. That's another name. Rudolf Steiner gives Christ. He gives him lots of names. The true human, the great I am, the universal human. And that's his picture based on this experience and multiple experiences after that, that the, the one who rose from the grave on Easter actually holds in himself kind of like a, a mother hen with hens, <laughs> all of our true potentiality. And that that true potentiality is also given to us as we grow in relationship with this being, this true human. So he's a kind of prototype for the risen Christ, for what we all are becoming. And I say are becoming because it's not it's not even bound to any kind of institutional religion in Steiner's conception. It's actually already inlaid in our very being that we are called to grow into a being that is of the same likeness and image as the true human being the male female that arose from the grave. So I know that's a lot, mm. but there's no, there's a very complex, but rich. And I would say extremely relevant and helpful picture of the self that Rudolf Steiner uh, works with. No, I, I absolutely agree that it's, it's very rich. And uh, also, I think uh, Jung would agree that, you know, that self-realization, it's not an ambitious project. It's about realizing that there is a self and turning to that or building a relationship to that. Then he might at times have to also put Christ at the central archetype. At times, Jung sort of swayed and made him all, almost into one of, of many. But, 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 but still... For a Westerner, I guess he would at least have said that Christ is at the center of uh, of this archetype of archetypes in in that in that sense. You mentioned the unconscious. I mean, the unconscious was this concept that it wasn't developed by Jung and others used it. But I was wondering how and if Steiner used that concept. I mean, I would say again, sometimes labels are difficult. He, I don't think Steiner used unconscious the mm. actual label. A huge amount, maybe because he was trying to distinguish himself from the burgeoning psychoanalysis. I don't know. But he describes things like in the depths of soul. Mm. Or he describes the soul as being so deep that there are all these unconscious elements in it, including 
you know, good spiritual beings, for example, good archetypes. So it also moves in in his descriptions. It moves into concepts like the superconscious. Mm. Not just, yeah, like meaning in as much as that means where our conscience comes from and in as much as that means where you could say ideals and helpful forces come just as much as in our unconscious, there's also lots of shadow realities. So I would say Rudolf Steiner describes these things with different different words. And if we were to give a term, he would say in the depths of soul. That's what he means. That's mm. what he uses. But, but yeah, super, yeah. super conscious is also a term that he would use? So he speaks of a super... No, no. He, no, what I meant is just that he would describe mm. realities of the soul that are akin to what would be described as the superconscious. Okay. And you said conscience, not, not consciousness, but conscience is something that he also describes, or how does he speak about conscience, Steiner? Yeah, I mean, gosh, Rudolf Steiner speaks a lot about conscience in various ways, how it evolved in its connection with Christ. He speaks about conscience as a part of the soul that is basically there to help us know the good, which is obvious, perhaps, but also has to be, let's say, disentangled from what appears to be good, so the false light, and what is only materialistically good, or good just in relationship to my materialistic life. So the conscience itself, as we find it in our souls, also has to go through a kind of evolution or an uncovering because it's very much often bound by, for example, what our parents would say to us or what we think is good, but turns out to be just a kind of ideal that is not helpful to anyone. So, yeah, again, the, the conscience for, for Steiner is, is complex, just like yeah. for you. Absolutely, but I think you, you, you should, you're shedding some light on it. And it, 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 it is actually remarkable how close they are in their positions there, especially in this 1958 paper by Jung called A Psychological View of Conscience that we discussed plenty of times in this podcast, where Jung's, Jung is trying to make differentiation between Freud's view of conscience and his own, but also yeah, the importance of sort of detaching the conscience from internalized images of the father or authorities or society or the superego and saying like, no, it's, there's something deeper. There is something, you know, spiritual in this connection. Uh, but it's, it's an, yeah, it's an unfolding and it's a lot of work to to, to, to shed light on this. But, it's yeah. a lot of work. So, for example, Rudolf Steiner would say something like, all of our ideals initially, which of course come through the 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 lens of our conscience, all of our ideals mm. are initially luciferic. So this is a, a key word that, yeah, luciferic being they, um, they seem good, 
but turn out to be dark. <laughs> mm. Kind of like, for example, you know, take any of the political idealisms that we've found in that, you know, they seem they seemed good to many people. And then they were actually terrible. Um, mm. So he says, for example, all your ideals that you have given to you, that come to you, they are actually all Luciferic and they have to go through a death and resurrection in your life if they are to become loving. Mm. So just because you're, you're a priest when you're growing up or your church or your parents said, you must do this, that's not enough. You, you've got to take that and go through a process of dying and resurrecting with it that it becomes something that's helpful and loving in your life. Hmm. Well, uh, returning to the uh, question of similarities and differences between or parallels between Steiner and Jung, uh, you mentioned earlier um, the practice of prayer and how, how central it is for yeah, for the Christian community and for, for Steiner. Uh, I think in the union, I mean, of course, there are Christian unions and many people turn into prayer, but it's not something that you write very much about prayer. And it's not like a central piece, like let's say dream analysis or active imagination or other tools or techniques that you yeah, developed for, for individuals to, 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 to develop and to get into this process. So I was curious about there and how, yeah, like when you have someone entering maybe the community or where, where do you start? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, so this is interesting because it it does also then strengthen the connection and the similarity with Jung and Steiner in a way because you could say if you if you were to read all of Steiner's works, which similar to Jung, it's it's a huge task. But you you wouldn't find much about prayer in Steiner's works, actually. Mm. Here and there, he says things like, well, how someone asks him, how do you know that prayer is good? And he would say, well, just pray for 10 years and then don't pray for 10 years and see what's better. <laughs> or, for example, he himself prayed the Lord's Prayer every day, loudly, um, out loud. Mm. And he, he practiced himself of prayer with prayer. But the way it's so the reason why it's so significant in the Christian community, this religious Christian movement that he inspired, is because our of our confession sacrament, our renewed confession sacrament, which in German is still called Beichte or confession, but in English we call it the sacrament of reconciliation or the sacrament of consultation. And there, as opposed to like in the Catholic Church, just coming and having to confess all your sins and then being given prayers, in, in our renewed sacrament, the, the, the individual comes in and, and we we work to first name the pain and the suffering or the shadow 
together. We, we work to disco discover that together in conversation. And then we ask the pain itself, we ask the shadow itself what it needs, so to speak. We, we, we try to be schooled by what our shadow being is saying. So for example, if it's fear, if I'm terrified to, to move or I've got to let go of something big in my life, in conversation that will arise and it can be very helpful just to name the fear, name it clearly. Mm. And it doesn't do any good if the priest just names it for the person. <laughs> it, it has to be a collaboration, as you know, as a psychotherapist. Mm. And then when we find the name, that becomes the place from which we find the prayer. So if it's fear of letting go or fear of the future, then we say, okay, well, what, what would we need or what would you need if I'm the priest? What would you need from Christ to help with this fear? So first it's finding the name, then it's working with the shadow to find a prayer that meets that specific need, not just an abstract prayer that's given like a Hail Mary. Mm. And then, for example, if it's if it's fear for the future, the priest would help the individual find a prayer kind of like, you know, oh Christ, help me to feel your presence and help me to receive your, your faith, your trust. Help me to feel that you are guiding my destiny. And then that prayer would be offered at the altar. And a, and a, and a blessing word would be said at the end. Mm. And that then becomes a, where, a way, that sacrament of reconciliation or sacrament of consultation becomes a way for the self to come into a new relationship with Christ that has to do with concrete reality of its own process, its own shadow, its own difficulty in prayer. And these are individual processes or so like people come to Bishta or they come to confession or, or this is like an individual practice or is it a part of the liturgy somehow when you all gather together or this is the individual path we're talking this, about now? This is the part yeah this is the particular sacrament yeah. of consultation or yeah. Yeah. Uh, for the individual and then that individual process where I'm really if we go back to our previous thought about the selves I'm really bringing my lower self into relationship with my true self with the help of the priest, mm. then that prepares me to work with the mass, the, the consecration of the, the Eucharist service in a better way. That helps me in a better way to join the whole community and work with our own transformational process. Mm. That we call it the consecration of the human being. Mm. 
And maybe this is a bit of a jump, and it's probably a bit of a too big of a question to go too deep into, but another thing that you was wrestling with and that we've been wrestling with in this podcast is the nature of evil and Jung's view on evil. And yeah, I mean, the answer to Job, as you might know, is quite a, he wrote some quite uh, misunderstood works, but also like provocative works that are not really ask the question about where does evil originate? You know, is it in the God? Is it in the self? Is it in man? So there's many different interpretations and then many different views. But what about Steiner on evil? Is that something he spends time on significantly to go into and to try to explain how evil's role or where, where it's posted or where it's coming from, originates? Yeah, that's a that's a just a wonderful question. Certainly, you could you could say that's another connection between these two. You know, Jung Jung kind of had radical and original, very helpful psychologically views on evil that ultimately integrate into his individuation picture. And Rudolf Steiner is very similar. He he understands and sees evil as fundamentally something necessary for human evolution. Something in his picture of, for example, Lucifer and Aramon, which are are kind of biblical based if you have eyes to see pictures of evil where there's the beast crouching at the door in Genesis and there's also the serpent in the garden. These are different pictures of one, the serpent being a Luciferic and the beast being Aramonic, pictures of different kinds of evil. One being egotistically devoted to power, you could say, that's the beast. Might makes right, that impulse in us. That's the beast. That's Araman. This kind of Persian name. And then Lucifer, which is this part in us that wants to be God already, imagines ourselves as bigger than who we are. You can be God, basically, is what the serpent says um, in Genesis. And this impulse lives in us, both of these. So his conception is that these archetypes, if you will, or beings, impulses, live in us, in all of us. And they help us in a way by bringing us to, bringing us off the track so that we are called to find the track, find the good again. So there, you could call it the necessary resistance to finding the good. Mm. Or the exaggeratedness that if I go down that path, I find, oh, that's not really that good. Kind of like everyone knows when you think something's good and you may find out down the road that it isn't so good. Mm. Um, the elusiferic experience (laughs) so and ultimately another way to see this not only is evil 
helping us to evolve. It's also allowed by God. Allowed by God to two things. Um, give us freedom. So the whole experience of the fall that's described in the book Bible is allowed by God so that we can have an experience of independence and have the possibility as separate from God, as beings who can think God doesn't exist. That's an incredible thing, actually. Um, in that state of kind of independence that we would have the, then the freedom to go the journey of reunification with our true self and with God. But in freedom, kind of like when Christ says to Peter in the Gospel of John, do you love me? Do you love me? He's, Christ is honoring the freedom of Peter, but also calling him to a new kind of relationship, a new communion, a new journey with him. So that would be that that fundamental state of being, of being free and independent, would be impossible without evil, without the fall, that God allows and suffers. This is another radical thing for Steiner. God suffers it because he also bears this state of being, because nothing is outside of God. <laughs> so far from the picture of the aloof old man that just pulls the strings and is separated from all the pain. The picture here is God allows it in his being so that the birth of a new being, a being that can love and freedom is possible. Hmm. So it's necessary, evil is allowed in God's being so that a new type of being, the human being, a being that can love in freedom, is possible. And he allows it also so that love can be revealed. Not only freedom, but so that love can be revealed. So, for example, Jesus' relationship to Judas. Go and do what you must. So he allows it, suffers it, in order that the ultimate picture of and reality of love can arise at Golgotha. So there's this deep picture that, that evil is necessary not only for the maturation of, of human beings, but also so that actual sacrificial love can be known. Oh, well, that's, that's, that's really enlightening to get this, get to lay it out like this and, and, and rich. I would like to ask, we, we found a lot of similarities, and you're really good also in seeing the synthesis or seeing, and they are very similar, mm -hmm. but, but are there also places where you see or where you see like, yeah, here, I don't, they seem very different here, or they don't seem to, you know, interlocate with each other? Well, 
and and to be fair, I ha probably haven't I haven't read all of Jung, well, but and so I'm I'm definitely less familiar with Jung, but I would say the differences that that I know about or that come alive in my mind when you ask that really have to do with maybe more methodological methodological issues like. Steiner didn't really use the dream life hmm. like, like Jung did. He, he did. In, there's, there's little bits of it, but he was much, his tools were, were very different, even though he worked with imagination. Hmm. But his, his picture in, of imagination was, again, slightly different from Jung's, he, he really he really tried to work with imaginations that he found himself that were not born out of dream life. And he really tried to work with imaginations as they revealed themselves in the Gospels, for example. Mm. But using dreams as a doorway to psychological reality or uh, spiritual reality even was not huge for Steiner. I would also say it's probably probably Steiner was a lot more certain and and I won't judge if that's good or bad but I, a lot more certain in his experience of spiritual beings as realities he experienced nine layer nine levels of hierarchies for example as realities not just archetypes so he also experienced you know demonic beings very very often speaks of them with a lot more solidity and concrete certainty than jung and i think that's actually true um, Jung, Jung was much more struggling with, is it a reality or is it a psychological dynamic archetype? Right. Meaning, is it a real being objectively or is it just a, a force in me, so to speak? That might yeah. also be a difference. Well, I think that's a very important point. I mean, Jung was also a psychiatrist, and he was somehow having this persona. So depending on where you meet him, also you get a bit of a different statement. So I think he often steps into this persona. And I say, yeah, I cannot say anything about that, but like becoming the scientist or the medical doctor. But then if we read his letters, he allows himself to speak more freely on, on matters like this. So maybe, maybe Steiner with his position was somehow more free in expressing himself openly at this in his public talks. Yeah, yeah but, I really want to. Yeah. yeah. I mean, also, I mean, in the union world, I mean, Jung is still, you know, at the center. He is some sort of, maybe not a guru, but, you know, he's the wise old man that we don't pray to, hopefully, but, you know, I dream about him and he's in our life and he guides us. I mean, how is it with Steiner for you? For me personally, I think I think it's very similar, probably in the anthroposophical Steiner world, that Steiner is also considered, you know, kind of the wise old sage, and 
in some ways, maybe it gets a little guru-like guru for sure. But but he himself would have would hate that, of course. He did not want to be treated as a guru and nevertheless was treated as such. But for me, I consider him to be a very important teacher in my life through his books, of course. And honestly, I've also had what I would call experiences of him helping me in certain instances, present at, at the altar even, in, in, in the, the, the Eucharist services. And I feel him as a tremendous reality helping our movement, helping, helping us in many ways. And yet I, I don't consider, I don't worship him. I don't, I don't feel dependent on him. I don't, I don't only read him or only work with his ideas at all. But I think my experience is that he very much is still connected to the work that we're doing. And beyond the grave helps us strengthens us as many of our founders do too it's not just rudolf steiner including those who never knew him um, saints for example so i have a deep deep love and respect and appreciation for rudolf steiner and what he brought and what he continues to to strengthen but i certainly don't worship him and i certainly don't rely on him solely <laughs> well i have hearing you speak like this I, yesterday actually by chance you could say uh, or synchronicity i was at the rudolf steiner house here in berlin with my daughter for a theater piece they did for christmas what, what strikes one when one comes in in this amazing building is the architecture is the light and it's just this unique forms and shapes and design concepts about out of the spiritual, you know, principles that Steiner developed. But then also, I don't know if it's always like that, but then it's also the photo of him, no? The photo, the frame photo of Steiner, the black and white photo, very strong personality, very intense, but he doesn't look like the healthy sort of young, you know, with a pie, a little bit more intense. But what I'm, sure. what, I, what, what I want to get at is this, something I also mentioned in our earlier conversation. What I find so fascinating with Steiner is, you know, it's, it's his legacy, of course. You know, we have in Germany also the companies, the Leida or other companies use, using his principle. We have in agriculture, we have the amazing schools that are still very active. I mean, the imprint and the roots that his ideas have taken in society, what an, you know, I don't want to reduce him to an entrepreneur, but what an amazing inspiration for us, for so many fields. And then we have what you're building, which is also beautiful and very unique with the Christian community. So you built all these commute spaces or activities or projects in the spirit of Steiner. While with, we have also, you know, the spirit of Jung is breeding, you know, in learning institutions where you can train to become a, become a Jungian analyst. You can go and find a Jungian analyst and work through, you know, your own, you know, in a process through the ritual or the legacy look a little bit different. I feel like maybe Steiner managed very well in establishing this, yeah, like cultural institutions within education, within Christianity, uh, within agriculture, within other fields. 
while Jung's legacy then is, you know, within the field of psychotherapy. Of course, he's outside. People read him. His books are available to everyone. But, but to me, it appears at least the Steiner had created more of a collective movement or something that had to do with community a little bit more. While Jung's legacy seems to me more sort of focusing on, on the individual and the individual's process. Yeah, that I've been sort of just witnessing and, and wondering about like how Steiner's ideas has have become so materialized in all these forms and shapes. Yeah, that's good, Jakob. That's a good point. I actually, I actually hadn't thought about it in that way, but it's true when you speak it that if you look at the Jungian communities, and of course you're more familiar with that than me, you don't see a lot of community. You see a lot of individual work and one-on-one therapy work. And, you know, if you do come together, it's, it's. You should be stopped fighting. (laughs) Oh, yeah, good. That's that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. That's not true. It's, it's usually, but it's, it's focused on the individual psychological path. Yeah. Much more so. And that's probably because most of Jung's writings are about that. Most of his works, most of his techniques have to do with that. Whereas Rudolf Steiner, I mean, think about how many different groups of kind of cultural initiatives came to him and asked him for help. Mm. Teachers. They wanted to form a new school. So that in itself is a community. A school is a community. And he founded the Walder School there in Stuttgart, right? And that spread. And those that's that's probably the biggest Steiner movement in the world, which is the Walder School movement. It's huge everywhere. Then you have biodynamics. You have farmers that came and said, you know, help us. And so that's a community. A farm is a community. Religious people help us with a community life. And he had much to say to the priests, the new priests, about how to help community life form and the necessity for the ritual as the, the center point for the community life, where everyone is taking communion together at the same altar, praying the same prayer, seeing each other, experiencing each other in this devotion and reverence. How, how powerful that is for building community. I think, I think it's also just a product, the reason why there's a difference, it's a product of who came to Steiner and, who, and how he helped and what he could say. I don't know that Jung could say much to farmers. I don't know, maybe. Well, we have this famous correspondence that Jung had with the founder of ANA. So, I mean, he made it deep inspiration of that whole movement of AA and their rituals and the necessity of the higher self. But I'm also thinking I've read nothing almost of Steiner besides the biography. And I also have a sense that may, maybe, or was his knowledge or his way of communicating more concrete or practical in some way? Because on one level, it's, it can be viewed as very esoteric some parts, but it seems like he's very practical as well. I'm not sure about this. You have to correct me if I'm wrong, but with Jung, it's not always always practical. That's probably a good description because, yes, Steiner can be extremely practical and concrete. Mm. For example, his work with the artist, the Eurythmus, this, this form of dance. Yeah. 
he's, you know, that's still happening in lots of places. He's very concrete. You do this, you do this, you have this color, this is extremely concrete with practices, with a religious life. It was completely concrete about what we needed for the sacraments and all, all kinds of things. So perhaps that's a help as well. But I think you made a really good point that, gosh, I don't, I don't know if I can think of a more influential Christian, or what I mean is a sacramentally Christian, uh, universally Christian, not doctrinal, movement than AA. And that Jung, you made a good point. Jung was very influential in the AA work, right? And that is, I mean, that's one of the most important movements of our time, I would say. Yeah. And it builds tremendous community. I mean, the, the, the communities of AA circles everywhere are incredible. Well, that's, I didn't realize it. it's a good point. I would like to ask you some practical advice before ending because it's been so rich and it's going to take some time to digest all of this. But where does one start with Steiner to begin? Where where would one start? Is there a book? I know everyone is different, but still, where did you start? Well, I started with how to know higher worlds, how to or knowledge of higher worlds. Sometimes it's called, and every you know, often people will have fun with. Well, what book did you start with, or what book? Mm -hmm. did cycle did you start with but yeah that's a good one or theosophy is a good one to start with if you're interested in kind of the spiritual scientific path of Rudolf Steiner the more anthroposophical path those mm. are two great, good books to start with mm. but if you're if you're interested in the path of the Christian community or movement for religious renewal um I would actually say our founder is the most, uh, some works from our founder, Friedrich Friedelmeier. And he, he is, we, we consider him to be our founder because he was actually the first ordained priest and before that was a Lutheran minister. And he wrote some extremely good books. One of them, maybe the most important, being called Meditation. Meditation. And that, that's a really good kind of Christian, anthroposophically inspired Christian theology that also touches in on the inner path. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that would be a, a, a very good place to start. That, that's really helpful. If one is interested in maybe not reading, but more experiencing what you're working on with the Christian community, I mean, where does one find you? <laughs> well, in Germany, you can just look up diekirchengemeinschaft.org, I think, and in the English-speaking worlds, the Christian Community Movement for Religious Renewal. And there, we we have congregations in in most of the major cities in the Western world, and you can you can try to find one. We also have a podcast called The Light in Everything. The Light in Everything. Mm. And that you can find on Patreon. 
And that's also a really good place to get introduced to the kind of pictures and archetypes that we work with. It's where two priests have conversations about these things. I mean, I know what we, we're going to end now, but how is it with, with your church stuff? I mean, can people who are not sort of well-read in Steiner, who doesn't have a background, can they just come to a congregation? Can they just come? Or is it more like people would look at them and like, who is this new guy? Because <laughs> you know how well, it is. It's not easy to, well, I know to how enter I... a church. And many people also follow this podcast. We explore different topics, but... You know, many people, some are Christians, some are not Christians, some are critical to Christianity, some have had very bad experiences with the church, so all understandable. And I know many churches today are not very open. What I like about what you are doing is also you're not, you're, 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 you are not out promoting or selling it, but you're doing, you know, interesting things. There's podcasts, but I'm still wondering, like, about, you know, stepping into a Christian community, a church, you know, can anyone do that? Anyone, it's open to all humans. Uh, you don't have to be interested in anthroposophy either, and you don't have to be a nominal Christian. Um, and like in every every group, sometimes you know, sometimes you'll you might get you might feel uncomfortable, like you're a new person. You might get some funny looks. You know, this this these things happen. But in principle, we are open to all and and the fact that you made that comment at the end there Jacob that I'm not trying to promote necessarily it's also a signature of the Christian community that we're not hugely we're not at all into like trying to get people to come to church we we have a, a deep and I would I think that would be true for every single priest we have a deep deep holy respect for freedom. And so much so that you would be hard pressed to find any priest that tries to get you to think or do anything in the Christian community, but simply wants to work with your free sense of what is good and be in relationship with it if you find that what is offered at the church and the sacraments are helpful to you. So we, we, we very much honor and respect, and I could put it in this way, it would, it would do you no good to just come to church because someone tells you you should. It's actually for us not helpful to just do something because of tradition or because of fear that you might go to hell or something like that. We experience that the sacraments are only very useful when you find actual medicine for your heart and soul in communion at the altar that you experience as upbuilding and strengthening for you in your life. That's what we, we really focus on. Hmm. Well, I think that seems uh, some appropriate place to end. So thank you so much, Jonah, for, for sharing today and yeah, for participating. Thank you. Enjoy. Thank you, Jakob.